with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. On today's show, China's August data points to a steady economic recovery, and we will also take a look at what China's Belt and Road Initiative has achieved ten years on. And now, let's begin with our top story. China posted better-than-expected economic data in August as the world's second-largest economy continues to recover steadily. Value-added industrial output rose 4.5 percent in August, up from the 3.7 percent annual growth recorded in July. Retail sales reported a 4.6 percent increase, which beat July's 2.5 percent rise, and the service sector also gathered steam. And China's securities regulator cut the stamp duty on stock trading last month. Our Liu Jiaheng takes a closer look at the effects of this move. The latest stamp duty cut on August 28th is the first such reduction since April 2008, when Beijing slashed the stock trading levy from 0.3 percent to 0.1 percent to prop up the market during turmoil caused by the global financial crisis. Traders have noticed the change and have been adjusting their trading actions accordingly. 我也算是个老股民了。对于这个 A 股这个低迷的状态 ，I've been speculating on the stock market for years, and the Asian market has been consistently in an offer state. So I haven't made any transactions lately. The stamp duty cut is an assurance for sure. I think I'm going to be more actively involved in trading stocks. As an investor, I can sense the government's confidence in trying to lift the stock market. But honestly, I think cutting the stamp duty is only a temporary policy. I hope to see more regulations implemented to boost the economy. The Chinese equity market is valued at 9.9 trillion U.S. dollars, serving as a barometer of consumer and business confidence. Since the Chinese economy has been struggling in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, policymakers have taken actions. However, now about one month into the stamp duty reduction, experts say the demand for a more robust policy response and hefty government spending is growing. Industry insiders believe the stamp duty cut is expected to have a short-term impact on the Chinese market. An account manager at a securities company, Sernet Yang, says market recovery requires more time, and investor apprehensions are currently centered on China's economic well-being. The market performance hasn't yet shown a clear reversal. In the past, when stamp duty cuts or major policies were introduced, short-term rallies would occur. The market isn't particularly cooperative, so it will take more time for a full recovery and for investors to regain full confidence. To further boost investor confidence, China's securities regulator has moved to lower margin requirements for buying stocks to 80% from 100%. Yang says positive changes shall be seen by the year end. Looking at the trading volume, the market has actually been in a state of contraction. Previously, the potential transactions in the Shanghai and Shenzhen exchanges could reach trillions, but recently it has been around 500 to 600 billion yuan. But with the economy gradually recovering and new policies being implemented, the market should move towards stability by the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Besides the latest efforts in capital markets, the central bank also unveiled measures to bolster the economic recovery. 
Since August, China's cut the interest rates of medium-term lending facilities, reverse ripples, and standing lending facilities. And China's loan prime rate also saw its second decline this year. Experts believe the moves will help shore up credit demand and boost consumption and investment growth in the long term. That is Liu Jiaheng reporting. And for more on this, join us on the line now are Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novem Archi Technologies, and also Chu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University. So Jiahe, first of all, China cut the stamp duty on stock trading in August. So what does this mean for the stock market? Well, actually, it means something pretty good. I actually did an analysis a few days ago regarding how much money you can save. I can't remember the exact data right now because it's been like two weeks. Uh, but I remember it was like a few hundred billions will be saved for investors uh, in the regular market. And if, if there comes a bull market, you know that that's actually saving more money for the stock investors. So it's actually giving a positive sign to the stock market. And we have seen that stock market has gradually been picking up uh, from the bottom since then, especially when we look at the Hong Kong market, which is not affected by the Asia stamp tax, but that's also affected because of the uh, positive confidence brought uh, by this cutting of the stamp tax. It tells the investors, you know, that, that the government really wants to stimulate the market. We are focusing on using the stock market as a very important financing tool for all the companies in China, especially for the high tech industry. So, you know, confidence is really important for the economy. I mean, there, there has been people saying that the role of the central bank, 99% uh, of the role of the central bank is to maintain the confidence and the rest of 1% is regarding uh, to, you know, adjust its, uh, its interest rates, the actual move. So the confidence is the most important thing and cutting stamp tax is actually helping this out. Mm. And so Professor Xu, what do you think does this mean for the stock market? And what's the stock market outlook, especially with this uh, new slew of policy measures? Well, I think uh, stamp tax cut uh, is a good news, uh, like Jaha just mentioned. It did uh, well save the investors a son of the handling fee, and handling fee usually will eat up your profit, net profit for sure. But for uh, the retail investors, um, I think it's just like uh, you buy the same McNugget and they give you an extra pack of sauce. Well, actually, it's better than none, right? But uh, I think most of the influences will be given to the bulk buyer and sellers and especially the high frequency uh, traders. So for them, because they're handling the trade, uh, you know, hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day, and they buy and sell in a very large sum. So I think this means something for them. So it actually are guiding the market makers to providing more of the uh, market the liquidities into this market and give everybody a good expectation that uh, the supervisor the regulators are actually paying attention to uh, the burden of the investors and they want to reduce this burden for them mm -hmm. and professor Xu, also for the economy as a whole what are the highlights from the economic data or figures in august do you think well, I think the most important thing is for the service sector. Service sector is continuing with this momentum. The dynamic, I think, is still vibrant. You go anywhere, you see, well, people are doing their tourism purposes, shopping, and the restaurant is very, very hard to book. And if you want, you know, uh, the National Day holiday is coming, and you take a look at the air ticket and train ticket is basically or sold out. So it's very, very hot. And also for the manufacturing, a lot of people are suspicious about it because uh, the 
not only the domestic sector, but more importantly, the uh, the foreign market right now are facing a lot of challenge, for example, in Europe and in North America, uh, etc. So people are taking Chinese manufacturing uh, as a uh, world factory. So if the outside demand is weak, so probably we're going to face some uh, pressure. But uh, this August data shows us uh, the China's uh, manufacturing sector is still very, very resilient. And we see it's starting to uh, march into the uh, rebound session or march into uh, the re-expansion session. So this is going to be some good news. And the third point is that uh, finally, I think the job market has been stabilized. Uh, many enterprises, especially the SME, started their recruiting plan again. So uh, for the uh, middle-aged uh, age group, I think the uh, job market is already very stable right now. And for the young people, I think the job market started to rebound uh, as we observed. Mm-hmm. And so Xiaohe, Professor Chu mentioned the service industry. Actually, we've seen the peak of summer traveling has led the hotels and restaurants to thrive. And uh, in the first eight months, uh, China's service industry scored 8.1% uh, growth. And this is believed to be good news for the labor market as well. So how do you see the trend moving forward? Well, I have been actually for two, two to three months. I have been in Sanya, I have been in Shanghai, and I can really feel the uh, demand to the hotel. You, know, can, you can see the people on the street when you are in Sanya. Uh, and when, when back to Shanghai for the business trip, which lasted about uh, two weeks um, uh, in, in the early of this month, um, and what I have found out is that you have to book your hotel like uh, two or two or three or even four days before. And if you try to book a hotel on the same day or, or for the next day, then you probably find the price go to a very high level or even the hotel tells you that they don't have any room. So you can, so you can see um, service sector is coming backward. You can just feel it not only from the uh, macro statistics, but also um, the feeling that you can get from the, you know, the, the economic level from your daily basis. You can you can really see this. So uh, I, would, I would say that, you know, for international investors who is not living in China, that's a difficulty for them to know what's going on because when they see all the reports and keep on saying that China is not coming backward, I mean this kind of saying has been there for for like decades and Chinese economy increased like you know twenty fold something like that. So, so you have to come over and you know leave in China to feel this trend which is you know going up forward. Mm-hmm. And Professor Xu, just now you mentioned the value added industrial output. This is also you know went up four point five percent last month, and this is manufacturing. What are some of the main reasons for the resurgence? And are we seeing China moving up the uh, manufacturing ladder into a more technologically intensive area? Yes, of course. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, the reason why the Chinese manufacturing sector has been uh, slowing down a little bit uh, this year, uh, well, some reason is due to uh, the outside impact, like the outside demand and also the post-pandemic reason. But for another reason, for Another proactive reason for China is that we are shifting gears because after uh, the past three or four years, China noticed one thing is that uh, now the world is changing. Uh, the demand structure is changing. The whole value chain, supply chain over the world has been changing. So in order to talk through this uh, weather, you cannot just doing keep on doing this labor intensive industry by selling T-shirts and toys. You need to climb up a higher ground. Uh, with higher uh, value added, with tax-savvy products and industry. That's how you can preserve yourself, and that's how you can make your economy resilient. So that's the reason why China is shifting gears. We try to, you know, uh, withering out uh, some of the low-ended industries, but meanwhile, we put down the uh, investment on the high-end 
technology-savvy industries and manufacturings. So that's the reason why from the supply side, China itself is upgrading its product. And also from the demand side, more and more countries are realizing that China, well, maybe they're doing something correct that we need to follow as well. For example, uh, if you go to Saudi Arabia, if you go to Indonesia, uh, if you go to Vietnam, all these countries are talking about how they can upgrade their value chain mm. because they want to reindustrialize themselves. They want to rebuild the capacity for themselves, not the low-end ones, but the high-end ones. They want to jump through directly into this new era of the industry. For example, Saudi want to, direct, uh, want to develop the electronic vehicle. Vietnam want to have the uh, smart robot for the manufacturing. Indonesia want to have to rebuild their aviation industry. So they want to buy the equipment from China to upgrade their own industry. So that makes China's you know, high-end product, uh, high-end manufacturing equipment to be very popular around the world right now. Mm. And so, Jiahe, we can see that by product type, solar panel, battery, service robots are the fastest growing categories, right? Yeah, we can, we can see that because, you know, China has been investing a lot into these things. I mean, the new energy, uh, new energy vehicle, new energy industries, kind of things. Uh, that's that's based on a few uh, considerations. First of all, is that we are an economy that is, you know, way too large. So China has got this uh, large population. We need a huge industry in order to, uh, you know, bring our per capita GDP upward. So we, we can't follow the path that many other countries have been following who have much smaller population compared with China. So the new energy industry, as we have found out, uh, as a very good example, is a very large industry. I mean, from everything, solar panel, uh, wind power, uh, even nuclear power, hydropower, these kind of things. Uh, we have been investing in the past one or two decades in order to uh, bring the new energy industry to uh, be a cornerstone for our economic growth. So, so these things has actually brought a very strong stimulus to the Chinese economy in these years, and uh, you know a lot of support to the employment as well. Mm. And Professor Chu, so recently the government have introduced a series of measures to bolster the economy, and these policies cover taxation, the housing market, the business environment, and foreign capital. So how could they help support the economic activities and recovery, do you think? Well, I think this is like a, a comprehensive package of policies. Uh, it's like a combo uh, of the punches into the economy. And for example, uh, right now, actually, I think China's um, economic recovery and the GDP recovery are actually not quite the same idea. For example, right now, as I just mentioned, if it goes through the service sectors and uh, high-end manufacturing, uh, which are two very important uh, sectors for the job recruiting, are actually getting rebounded really quickly. I think the recent um, slowing of the whole GDP uh, recovery majorly, well, I think you have uh, because of the uh, property market. Uh, property markets stand re need to rebuild their expectation and confidence. So the government really paid attention to that. And we do have some leeway in this area. For example, uh, the government of Rhino issued uh, the upgrading policy in many cities because uh, in China, many cities are very old. Some of the cities are even have thousands of years of history. So you can imagine they have some old structure area uh, with the shanty towns or with very, very old buildings. So they need to be upgraded. 
And even though China's uh, cities are very large, but still many uh, uh, urbanites need to you know, have a better living standard, larger living room. So this can be the future uh, ground for the next growth in the uh, urbanization. We call a re-urbanization. And also for the financial sector, we're lowering our interest to continual sleep. Because in China, we our economic circle are very different from the rest of the world. We're actually like half years uh, in advance or behind the world circle. So we're not actually in the same pace, which gives China more of the leeway to manage its own monetary policy. For example, um, like right now, even though we've been lower many times as our mortgage rate, but still our mortgage rate is more than 3% or even 4%. This is actually equals to the high point of many developing nations, you know, after the interest rate hike. So still we have some, uh, uh, you know, leeway. And also take a look at China's CPI. The China's CPI is still in a very, very low ground, which also give us some uh, potential to manage our own monetary policy. After all this, I think um, we still have a lots of lots of policies in a pocket of the government to manage our own economic and financial situation. Keep on punching until uh, you know, the whole uh, vitality of our economy is getting up. Mm-hmm. Well, while speaking with Xu Qiang, the Assistant Director of the International Monetary Institute at Renmin University, and also Chen Jiahe, Chief Investment Officer at Novin Archi Technologies. And after a short break, we'll examine what China's Belt and Road Initiatives has achieved 10 years on. Stay with us. D-Dive, a podcast of CGT Radio. We go beyond headlines with reporters from around the world. Search for Deep Dive on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Take a deep dive into the news every week. Hear our conversations. You're listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. The Belt and Road Initiative, proposed by China in the year 2013, has become one of the most significant and ambitious infrastructure projects in the world today. The BRI seeks to improve connectivity and trade between China and countries in Asia, Europe, Africa, and beyond. So what has it achieved in the past 10 years? For more on this, I spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, a senior research fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So, Dr. Zhou, in the first eight months of this year, China's trade with BRI countries was up 3.6% on a yearly basis, and this is accounting for 47% of the country's total foreign trade. So how do you explain this trend, and what's the driving forces of this momentum? We know that Belt and Road Initiative is a kind of very important initiative, and many countries are interested in anticipating these kind of things. So we are trying to establish the more uh, connections among the countries and regions. We see that the supply chain has uh, under pressure in the world and uh, the Belt and the Road Initiative countries are trying to strengthen their connectiveness. So they have uh, achieved a certain kind of uh, results. I, I think that from the trade, we know that the trade between these uh, countries has improved a lot. Although there are a lot of uncertainty in other regions, I think it's a kind of reflect, uh, you know, we have a better 
and the strengths and uh, the connections and the cooperation among us. Mm-hmm. And China's Belt and Road Initiative has far-reaching implications in China, Asia, and even the whole world. So how does this initiative help to translate the concept of a community of shared future? Every country has a different uh, vision about how can we develop and what's the target of us. So, I mean, from this kind of uh, uh, platform of the Belt and Road Initiative, all the related countries can have the platform to show their understanding and their wishes. We, based on these wishes and adjust our actions to reflect the, the ways, how can we achieve these goals? So, in China's uh, experience, as we know the infrastructure connection is one of the priorities for us to have a sustainable development in the past decades. And we believe it is also one of the main factors that can drive the urbanization and the industrialization of the developing countries along the Belt and Road Initiative. So we have the same understanding and may, maybe we can try to do some uh, mutual or uh, plurally uh, planning on how can we interconnect between the different countries and how can we improve the software environment to improve the trade and investment and the related activities of the companies. Mm-hmm. And talking about some BRI projects specifically, Dr. Dr. Joe, for example, in the year 2015, the Indonesia government unveiled a plan to build a high-speed railway to enhance the connectivity between Jakarta and Bandung. And the railway is the first of its kind in Southeast Asia. So could you give us some basics about this uh, you know, high-speed railway? To what extent can it change the local transport? Actually, in my understanding, it's not only a, a railway in this region. Uh, I mean, outside of China, uh, it is maybe the first railway in the world that outside of China uh, built by Chinese companies. I think that, you know, Indonesia is uh, the largest uh, a population country in the Southeast Asia. So it's have a lot of problems of uh, communications. We know that for a country and the cities we, where there are so many people want to commute from one city to another, it has to use a better and more stronger way to support them. We know the highway is uh, uh, very uh, I mean, jammed and a lot of traffic in Indonesia. So they really want to improve the connectivities between the main cities, the two main cities in Indonesia. Uh, actually, this railway is uh, one of the these ideas to improve the efficiency allowed. I, I think that maybe nowadays it's just started to improve the efficiency and the people can choose uh, I mean, uh, as they want to live in one city and actually work in another, well, the businessmen are also uh, affected and benefited from this railway. They can spread their businesses much easier to address, uh, you know, different uh, demand of the market in the two cities. Well, Indonesia is a country where there are so many islands. I think that they do need more uh, innovative ways to address the transportation problem, not only by the airplanes, because it's too costly and uh, there are a lot of uh, inflection uh, uh, or influence by the climate or weather. So the railway is a really a good thing to try to benefit the mm. connections and improve the the flow of the different resources. And another flagship project under the BRI is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor or CPAC. So what does the CPAC mean for both China and Pakistan and also the region? 
Yeah, China and uh, Pakistan, we are the all climate friends. I think it's a one very special uh, friendships between the different countries, no matter which government uh, they are. Uh, actually, for Pakistan, they are uh, lacking of uh, enough supporting infrastructure for quite a, a while. I think that is also one of the challenges that the people in Pakistan want to address because Pakistan is also a country with so many population. Well, for the CPAC, they are actually uh, putting more emphasis on, uh, especially on the electricity uh, generation and supply. We know that electricity is uh, one of the main source of supporting power for the manufacturing. And for Pakistan, they do have uh, many uh, advantages, like for the labors, for some of the resources, and also for the market. So they want to improve their uh, position in the industrial line or a chain in the world. So the CPAC is making our very uh, important support for them to meet their uh, demand for the electricity. So now you can see that uh, Pakistan can not only uh, uh, satisfy its own demand of the electricity, but uh, to a certain extent, it can export certain electricity, electricity to other countries. So it's uh, one of the, you know, the examples. And for another, the Gwadar uh, port is also a very important place to develop as a free trade port because it's one to not only to improve the trade, but also trying to attract the investors from other countries while it achieved that goal. So we can see that from the CPAC, the industrial chains or corridors has been built to improve and provide more opportunities for the local people and also benefit and attract many FDIs from, from other countries. That's a very good example to improve the livelihood of the people in Pakistan. And so high unemployment rate is a pressing issue in South Africa. And Chinese tech giant Huawei promised that half of its workers in South Africa were citizens of the country. The company also planned to invest in training the youth in the country. So this is one example of Chinese enterprises showing more responsibility in the local development. So could you tell us more about your observation on that? Yes, South Africa is one of the BRICS countries. It just held the BRICS summit this year. We know that uh, for this country, for many years, I have visited them several times, and they talked, told me that uh, the unemployment is one of their challenges. So I think that the problem is not only about what they can do for the traditional ways of development uh, and also for the attractive industries, but how can they address the new demand of the market, like for the digital economy. Well, Huawei is trying to provide their abilities to improve uh, more jobs and create more opportunities for the people. I think it's a, a very important way for us to think about how can we improve the skills of the youth trying to uh, fit for the new opportunities of the jobs. Well, the digital economy has made it a very important uh, improve on the expansion of the business network not only limited in one country, but spread around the world. So actually, I think that is quite an entry point or, uh, you know, something that they can enter into a new era by supporting these countries' abilities in the new digital economies in the new era. And that's Joe Mi talking about China's Belt and Road Initiative 10 years on. With that, we end this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening.